I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. This evening we'll study chapter 6, verse 19, through chapter 7, verse 2. 1 Samuel 6, 19 through 7, verse 2. Let us read God's holy and inerrant word. And he, that is God, struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh, because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck seventy men of them, and the people mourned, because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Yarim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Yarim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Avinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to take charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Yarim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. This is God's word. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we consider this ancient passage of scripture, O Lord, the testimony of your holiness O Lord, the example that should be set for your people in worship. O Father, we pray that you would deal with us. Lord, that we would consider you and your holiness. O Lord, that we would be cut to the heart and convicted of our own sins and our own unworthiness. O Father, and that we would be made a people who would desire to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. What sort of worship pleases God? This is a question that has been asked throughout Christian history. But over the past 100 years, the question has been pressed again and again. And we have seen, increasingly, all sorts of innovations being introduced in the worship of the God of heaven. And it seems to be at least in these days, an open question for our society. And it seems to be answered that worship seems to be according to whatever the culture likes, anything that feels right to us. Anything that feels spiritual to me isn't that my spiritual worship. And in the end, it just boils down to this. The way we answer is... That really, it's all about what makes us feel like we are communing with the divine in worship. But you see, there is a profound problem in this line of spiritual logic. It displaces God as the object and consumer of our worship. It makes worship about what pleases me and about my own taste and my own culture rather than the culture and the taste of the God of heaven. 
about my pleasures rather than his pleasures, my delights instead of his delights. And the biblical issue that has always stood over the worship of the people of God is this. Idolatry is denoted about who is the one receiving adoration. Is it God or a created thing? Or the heart and the delights of the worshiper? That's the big question. And the thing that we need to see in this passage of scripture is this. God himself is the sole and only consumer of worship. And he is holy. It's not about what pleases us, it's about what pleases him. It's not about what delights our heart, it's about what delights his heart. It's not about our culture, but the culture of his holy character. And this is a lesson that the Israelites are sore to learn. Because as we approach this passage, there's history. We go back to chapter 4. This has been months ago for us in our evening study. But you may recall that they, in the midst of warfare, brought out this object. The Ark of God. Not a thing to be worshipped, not a thing to be venerated, but rather a symbol of the presence and the promises of God in the midst of his people. And what did they do? Well, they took the ark out and they attempted to use it as a weapon unto their own ends. What happened? Well, first, 4,000 fell without it and then 30,000 fell with it. And the ark was taken into the hands of the Philistines, a foreign people that worship false gods. They took the ark and they set it up where? Well, right next to a false god in a temple made by the hands of men that didn't reflect the character of the God of heaven. And they learned a hard lesson that our God would not be treated like an idol. Not to be set upon a pedestal, not to be placed into a house. And that our God is holy. And when men don't worship him as they ought, there are terrible things that happen. You see, these people were cursed. Not only were they cursed in general, they were cursed in specific. They received tumors. There was pestilence. And what did they do with this great God, the God of the Israelites, the God of heaven? They tried to move him one city to the next city to the next city. Let's dispose of him. Throw it out the window. Throw it out of the ship. Sink it to the bottom of the sea. Let's get rid of this God. Let's dispose of him. And here in the passage of Scripture, the Israelites receive once more the ark of God, the symbol of his presence, the symbol of his holiness, the symbol of his covenant. They receive it back. And they try to treat God exactly as these pagan people, the Philistines, treated him. And it just did not play out well. And so two things I want us to see from the passage of Scripture we have before us this evening. The first of them is this. Godly worship guards our hearts. Godly worship guards our hearts And secondly, godly worship displays the holiness of God. Godly worship displays the holiness of God. And so again, that context that that we have just touched upon, the battle 
with the Philistines at Ebenezer. Where the people, after hearing of the great loss, what did they do? They considered, how can we do anything? Well, our God is great. Our God is mighty. Maybe we should pray to that God. No, that's not what they did. We're told they did a different thing entirely. They went to the temple. They took an object intended for the worship of the holy God of heaven from the place where it was appointed to be. They brought it into battle. And you may recall from chapter 4, the account of the Philistines. What did they do? They saw the ark coming at a distance. Presumably uncovered. They knew what it was. Probably gleaming in the noonday sun. And they say, a God has come into the camp. What can we do with this? We've never dealt with this before. I mean, these people are bringing out a a weapon of spiritual destruction. This is that same God that conquered the Egyptians, the great army of the ancient world, this empire. What are we going to do with this? Nonetheless, the battle commenced. The Israelites failed. Their hearts had extended against God in a way they sought to use the Lord to their own ends. And the Philistines took and placed the Ark of the, God, of the Covenant of the God of Israel into the house of Dagon. Again, on two different days, you see Dagon's taken and falls to the ground. He at first was just laying there before the ark, and in the next day he's decapitated. And again, the Philistines do what? They try to, to treat the God of Israel just like any other God. Just move him around again. Until the point where the people said, we've had enough. We've had enough of the diseases. We've had enough of the calamity. We've had enough of the tumors. We've had enough of the pestilence. We really need to get rid of this thing. And one of the elders of the Philistines said, hey, you know, I've got a good idea. Let's call together a council and confirm it among us. Let's send this thing back to the people of Israel. And that's what they do. But you recall that they said, we can't just send it back empty-handed. We've got to send it back with some sort of a sacrifice. And so what do they do? Well, they fashioned small mice, one for each town of the Philistines that was afflicted, and small tumors out of gold. Why? It's not according to the Bible. It's not according to the Word of God. They're people that don't know the Word of God or the customs of the God of heaven. They just do this because this is best as they can understand to appease this God, to give a sin offering, these symbols, this material wealth to the God of Israel. And they set the ark and these things on a cart and they send it behind two nursing mother cows, taking the calves back into the town and they send it off in a test of God to Beth Shemesh back into the Israelite testimony. And we're told in verses 14 and 15 that the cows went pulling the ark into Beth Shemesh into the field of Joshua. And there they were back in the midst of the people of Israel. But let's look at what the Israelites then do well we're told that in verse 14 and 15 whenever the people saw lifted up their eyes and saw the ark they rejoiced 
And that when the cart came to the field of Joshua and Beth Shemesh and stopped there, there was a great stone there. And on that great stone, they split up the wood of the cart and they offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. Well, up until that point, we seem to be tracking with what's dictated for the worship of the God of Israel. But then in verse 15, you read something else. They do a different thing. And it's led by Levites, this tribe that raises up priests. And we're told that the Levites took down the ark of the Lord from this wagon. And what did they do? Well, they took it and the golden figures that were in a box and they set them on the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered the burnt offerings, sacrifice, sacrifices, and so on and so forth. That's the context. The ark sat on a stone. Everybody can see it. And there with the ark are these little offerings, mice and tumors made of gold. And so we come to verse 19. And this is the response of God to their act of worship. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. That's kind of a hard picture, isn't it? You have the return of the ark of the promises of God and as soon as it comes back, the people make a sacrifice They make one misstep, they take the ark, they put it on a stone, and men look upon it and are struck dead. Seventy men dead for a people that have already endured incredible loss with 34,000. What in the world is going on in this account? Well, it's something like this. All of Beth Shemeth gathered, gathered around. Look at the box. Look at what we have. We have our holy relic. Let's put it up where everybody can see. It sounds like a good idea, doesn't it? Except it's not according to the directive of God. It's not how the Lord has said His worship should occur. It's not that they just put it on a stone, but the men were accounted as being struck down. Why? Because they were gazing upon it, looking at it, and venerating it as an idol. The gold box with the cherubim on the seat of mercy on the lid, there upon the top, this magnificent box. They're looking at it. They're venerating it. And they're doing exactly what the Philistines did with the likeness of Dagon. Just stick him on the stone, just on the pedestal, there so we can see him, to put him in his place. To treat God as we would desire to treat him, rather than the way in which he intends. Seventy men are struck dead. You know, the Bible has a whole lot to say about how the ark is to be handled. It's very specific. In fact, all of the furnishings of The synagogue and the temple and the tent of meeting, all of these religious and holy items are specifically said to, are specifically told how we are to handle them and how the people of Israel were certainly supposed to. And in Numbers 4, there's this really interesting 
uh, direction, that whenever the ark is to be moved, that firstly, it is to be covered by the skins of badgers. Some translations will say the skins of goats. The Hebrew seems to indicate an animal like a badger. The King James Version translates it that way. It seems to be quite accurate. With badger skins, this thick leather, that's the way the Bible speaks of it. It's, it's covered on all sides to, to veil its sight, but it's not only that. It's not just the, the leather of the badgers placed over this, but there's a blue cloth that's then to go on top of it. And some commentators, they think about this and they say, what's going on here? Well, oh, it's precious. It's to protect it. It's to keep it from getting knocked if it's to hit a tree or a stone as the people carried about on these poles. It's to, it's to care for it so it doesn't get dirty, so it doesn't get rained on. Uh, the, the skins of badgers, everybody knows badgers are waterproof, and obviously that keeps water off of the gold-encrusted box. That's just silly. The directive of God to cover this thing is in every way, according to the wisdom of God, regarding our hearts. What do I mean? God's directive for the care of this object to be used in the worship of his, of his holiness is such that he knows if we look upon the ark, if we see the ark, that things will happen in the heart of man and we will venerate it idolatrously. We'll place it up on a stone so that we can just gaze on it. On it and not our hearts to be peering upon Him spiritually or thinking upon Him and His mercy. You see, if these people in Beth Shemesh had taken care, had it covered the ark, had not placed it in full sight for all people to see, there would have been safety. And some say, well, they didn't know this sort of thing. That's that's laughable. How could they know? Why would God do this sort of thing? Because of the heart of humanity. Not only that, he warned them. Numbers chapter 4, verse 20. They shall not go in to look at the holy things. For even if they do it a moment, they will die. God is serious about the idolatry that grips the heart of humanity. And you say, Pastor, I don't know. This passage doesn't seem to indicate anything about idolatry. Peek ahead just a little bit. This won't be the sermon text, but just look at what we go on in verse 3 to read about. If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. It's directly contextual. God is concerned that even his people not worship him like idolaters. And the restrictions that are derived from the word of God according to our worship ought to be for the guarding of the hearts of God's people. Why in Presbyterian churches is there this thing called the regulative principle to protect us from the condition of our hearts. To worship God rightly. Not as the nations. 
not according to what pleases us, but according to what the scriptures show simply please him. Now worship has obviously changed. The ark is not in the hands of the people of God. The temple has passed. Christ has made one sacrifice for sin. There is now, therefore, no necessity for any further sacrifices. So how is our worship formed in any way according to these things? Because it is derived from Scripture. The revealed will of God, the self-revelation of God, so that Christian worship ought to be like a mirror that simply holds back to Him the one thing that truly reflects His character, His Word. That's why in our service, if you look through the bulletin, you'll find Scripture and Scripture and Scripture and Scripture and Scripture again. Whether it's called a call to worship, whether it's any of our singing derived from the Scriptures or this morning a direct singing of the psalm, why? We're guarding our hearts and we're hoping to proclaim the glory of the God of heaven. As we continue, you can see the second point in this passage of Scripture because it's not only that the people cry out in anguish with the death of 70 of the men of Beth Shemesh. In verse 20, we have the men who remain cry out responsively to what's happened and they say this, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Who could stand before him? This is the language of trembling men who fear the Lord. But why do they? Because in their presence, God kept his word. Very specifically, Numbers 4.20. This is a holy God. Look at what he would even do. And they simply view themselves in the light of the holiness of God and they say, who can stand as they search themselves out? You see, holy worship has this effect not only to display the the holiness of God to His people, but to press into our hearts and cause us to take account of ourselves and simply say, where am I according to Him? Can I offer to him anything in truth? Anything acceptable? Why? Because holy worship holds out his character. The character of the holy God. He's not like any other. He's not like us. He's not like Dagon and the gods of the nations. He's not like our culture. That's fallen. That's sinful. That reflects us very well. He is simply like himself. Every now and again, especially when pastors gather, I think of Presbyterian meetings or I think of General Assembly that we'll have in just a few weeks. Um, There's always a, a review. You kind of meet your old seminary friends or your old ministry friends or maybe the Uh, people you've known along the way and you just get together and you have a a good time to say hey how are things going in your church well things are going well and it's always interesting we're always kind of 
feeling out? What's, what's the state? What, what's your church like? What are you guys actually doing this, these days? Are you guys having ballet in the midst of the worship service? You wearing a purple gown? What's going on? How are you guys doing? You guys worshiping in flip-flops on the beach? What's going on? We're always sort of seeing what's, what's the state of affairs. One of the things that I'm so profoundly reminded of again and again and again is that the churches that seem to be growing the most spiritually are the churches that are the most plain. The churches that are the most biblical. And every church will say, we want to be biblical. We're a biblical church. We open the Bible. We try to read and preach the Bible. We believe the Bible. There's no church that would ever say, we don't believe the Bible. But how is it shown? How is it shown forth? in your worship services? How is it shown forth in your pastoral life and in your preaching and in the lives of your people? It's always a thing to ask and a question to be pursued because what is God concerned with? Us knowing him and us being conformed to his likeness. Godly worship displays the holiness of God to us through his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures, O Lord, for their teaching. Lord, even ancient passages like this, O Lord, passages that we're intended to learn from, take lessons from, corrective lessons. O Father in heaven, we pray that you would help our church to grow. O Lord, that we would be people who would regularly be asking ourselves the deep question, Oh Lord, am I pursuing you and your holiness and your worship and your adoration in worship? Or am I just looking to be comfortable? Am I just looking to be in a place in which it affirms me and the things that I think? Oh Father in heaven, we pray that you would help our church to grow, Lord, in spiritual devotion in private life, and in corporate life. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.